the recording worked really well yet last week, and uh, I had a great audio from it. So I'm really I'm really pleased by that. So we will um, plan on using the audio uh, for our our podcast. So we're starting with the book of Colossians, as I mentioned, and uh, we're looking forward to seeing what God has for us. And and again, we have to build the porch and the foundation before we can start building the house. So the first thing we want to talk about is, is, is just a little bit about Colossians. And Colossians is, is actually a, a book that's written for a church that's in Colossae. Now, uh, give me a second here to uh, see if I can figure out how to do this. We will see what happens. And there's some place in here. Share screen. And uh, here we go. This is what we want. So, can you see that? I hope. Uh, yeah. Yep. There again. Yeah. All right. Nice. Is, it, is it correct? Yes. Yeah. Oh, good. All right. So, it's a map uh, of Michigan. Yeah, thank you. Yes, I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you can see my arrow, uh, you can see that uh, uh, this here is Turkey. Uh, you've got uh, Cyprus, Crete. Over here is Greece, uh, Bulgaria up in here. Uh, uh, this is uh, for some strange reason we have Sicily over here. That must be for for uh, Giuseppe. Was Casabuono? Yeah, Casabuono is uh, right over in this general area someplace. I'm not sure exactly where. Um, anyhow, so uh, this book is written to a church in Colossia. You'll see it's if you see Lycia, uh, Lycia, you'll see that right here, right above it, in small letters, Colossi. And it's got a red line under it, which means that it's still somewhat active today as, as far as a, 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 um, a city or a town uh, there. Now, this is written to Colossi. You'll notice that, um, I, I don't know how my, uh, can you see past uh, Cyprus at all? Yeah. Okay, because yep. I, I can't because I've got your, your picture showing, which is fine. So you come up through um, uh, Jerusalem and then you've got, uh, um, Antioch of uh, of Syria up in this general area and then Paul took several different missionary journeys um, and, I, and I don't remember how to get rid of my how do I get rid of my screen that didn't that helped a little bit let's go and see what happens if I go to this can you see that hey Val what country is that today Colossium Perfect. Turkey. Oh, it's Turkey. part of Turkey? Yep. Can you see a, a, a one with a bunch of lines now? No. No? All right. Well, hang on. Let me just see. Samaria and Israel? Well, I've got a bunch of lines. I've got a bunch of red and green and, or red and, yeah. and blue. And, yeah, we can see that. Okay. So you can see that uh, this is a, these, these lines are all pictures of uh, showing the, the, the travels of Paul. This pink know. one here is this first missionary travel. But look at this second one. And he goes through um, from Antioch. He goes up into Tarsus and around Lystra. He goes up to Pisidia, Antioch. But see how he comes right, right through here in Colossae and over to Ephesus. Now, Colossae and Laodicea, we know the, the, the name of the church Laodicea comes from, uh, we know that from uh, Revelation. Remember, we talk about the church in Laodicea. We talked about the church in in Philadelphia, the church in, in Sardis, the, the church in uh, Thyatira, 
these are all churches that are in in uh, Turkey, but you'll notice that Colossae and, and <coughs> is very close. They're about six miles apart. And at one time, back in the uh, uh, early part of the of uh, before Christ, uh, Colossae was a major city. Uh, after the Romans came in and took over, uh, Laodicea became the center of the, uh, the most important city of that region. It was made, made more or less kind of a capital. But Colossae was founded, we know uh, that it was around during the time of 4, 485 uh, BC to 450, 465 BC. Uh, Xerxes of Persia, which was a Persian emperor at that time, was uh, uh, was it was a thriving city, and so for hundreds and hundreds of years it was around. It was the main, the main route from Ephesus over here on the coast to get into the hinterland. So you had to go through Colossae originally, and uh, in this valley there are there were three uh, small uh, towns, and and eventually Colossae, Laodicea, and a third town uh, that was there as well. Uh, became the central cities. Now, the trip from Colossae over to Ephesus is about 100 miles. And you can imagine walking that, that would take you oh, probably a day or two, I'm guessing, right? Because most of us can walk 50 miles a day. <laughs> okay, just a thought. Uh, for a lot of, uh, there's another small town here, which I can't remember how to pronounce anyhow. So we have the founding of the Church of Colossae. By the way, this is one of the, there are several books, uh, several epistles that were written by Paul that were not, um, how do I get this back to stop sharing? There we go. There we go. <laughs> All right, we're back. Uh, several churches, uh, several letters that Paul wrote were written to churches that he did not found. Romans would be one of them. Remember, we, we studied the book of Romans. He did not found the book of Romans, nor did he found uh, this uh, the church in Rome or the church in Colossae. Uh, Colossae was at this time a mixed city in the sense that it had the native uh, uh, people, which was uh, um, Phrygians, and uh, there were also Greeks uh, had uh, had settled in the area uh, after the defeat of um, of uh, Persia, and um, and then there were uh, Jews from the diaspora that were there, and eventually the Romans also obviously came in. To there, so that's the the church the, in all or the city. The church was founded in all probability by a guy by the name of Epaphras. Now we don't know who exactly. If Epaphras sounds an awful lot like Epaphroditus, which we ran into in in Philippians when we studied the book of Philippians or the book of Philippi. So we're not sure if that's the same person or not. But Epaphras is a. Uh, you know, like a shortening of the, of the name Epaphroditus. So it's possible it's the same person. It might not be. We don't know for sure. But Epaphras here was probably the founder of, of this church, and he was a uh, disciple of Paul. Now, the reason for writing this book is kind of important because uh, Paul always writes for a purpose. He doesn't just write for the sake of, you know, I got nothing else better to do, so I'm going to send somebody send somebody a note and in this particular instance uh, it would appear that there was false teaching going up these people had become christians but had been uh, uh had false teachers come in that were t uh, that were showing them some different 
uh, teachings other than the, the fact of Christ being uh, truly the Son of God and being co-equal with God the Father. In fact, um, th there were two major developments that came out of this time frame. And remember, when we, if you remember, for those of you who are with me, when we studied Galatians, you'll remember that Galatians, we talked about uh, the fact that there was a group uh, that eventually by the, the third and fourth century became very prominent in certain parts of the Roman Empire that were Christians, but they were what we call Gnostic Christians. Remember Gnosticism? Didn't expect you to. Okay, so what is Gnosticism? Gnosticism is one of the, the uh, areas that Paul is going to be fighting against. Gnosticism finds its roots back in the Persian Empire. And uh, it was a, a, what we call dualism. Dualism means that there were two, two equal uh, originally in their thought process, uh, dualism was two equal entities, one fully good, one fully bad. They were co-equal and it was all depending upon which one was in ascendance as to who had primary authority over a particular period of time. Um, this concept uh, was, you know, kind of like the, the Chinese version of uh, yin and yang. You know, the two, the white and black, black and white had to be combined together uh, in order to have a, a, a fully developed pro, uh, concept. And so it is in, in this idea of dualism or Gnosticism came into the church as a result of that. There are two major streams, and we've talked about this before, of, um, of Gnosticism. Gnosticism believed that in general, uh, again, there are lots of different different versions of Gnosticism, just like there are lots of different versions of Orthodox Christianity, whether you're uh, Catholic, uh, Orthodox, um, Protestant, and within the Protestant movement, you've got all sorts of other ones like, right, you've got Methodist, Baptist, Presbyterian, uh, Pentecostal, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So each has a little different flavor, but in general, Gnosticism believed that uh, that the spirit was good and the body was bad. Flesh was bad, spirit good. The result of that was that in one of two ways, you either became uh, very licentious in the fact that it didn't matter what you did in the body, you could do whatever you wanted. Or the other side was to go very legalistic and you would keep the body into subjection and you would spend all of your time on this, on the spirit. And, uh, and so you had a lot of rules as to what you could or couldn't do. Um, you think of uh, the Puritans uh, during uh, the, the, just before, prior to the founding of our country, uh, the Puritans believed that they forbade many pleasures of the body. You couldn't do them. You had no, you couldn't have any. And, and again, from my background, uh, I was very much uh, brought up in a legalistic background. So there were a lot of rules and regulations. And you proved that you were a good Christian based upon whether or not you followed the rules. So uh, we know that that's not the case. We know that God created man in His own image, and therefore the flesh is as important for us as as the spirit. And um, so the core of Gnosticism was the idea of understanding that there was special knowledge, secret knowledge that you could have. And as you moved up the ranks, 
in understanding, you got more and more special knowledge. And this special knowledge became very important because it gave you power. Uh, much like uh, the ancient uh, Egyptians that believed that if you knew the, the secret name of a god, you could control that god. And, and in this particular case, the more it, it, knowledge you had, the more control that you had over your own destiny and over the destiny of others. Um, but we know that in, in general, that isn't the case, right? The more knowledge we have, the, the, it's usually not controlled by us, but pride controls us. Because the more knowledge we get, according to First uh, Corinthians 13, knowledge does what? Puffs, it puffs up. up. Yeah, it puffs up. So right. it creates uh, issues when we have more knowledge. In fact, that's one of the problems of people who are, uh, the more training you have, the more easy it is to get, you know, to think that I've got a handle on all this. And to be honest with you, people that have more training sometimes have less handle on spiritual matters, in my opinion, than those of us that don't have training. <clears throat> so, um, because we have to rely more on God. So there is one other thing you need to know about this. Uh, the main crux of, of Gnosticism believed that, that Jesus was not the same as God the Father. Um, many of them taught that the, the Spirit of Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism and departed when he was being crucified. Uh, they also believed, as I mentioned, that the physical world was evil. And the spiritual world, uh, you could become godlike in your as you became more and more spiritual. And they actually taught a, a large group of them taught that there was this god by the name of Jehovah. Maybe you've heard of him, and he created the physical world, and therefore he was the creator of evil, which flies directly in the, in in the, against what Christianity teaches. So this whole concept of Gnosticism became a uh, a real problem for the early church. Uh, by the time the third and fourth century got here, it was a major, uh, a major problem. Uh, but specifically further south, actually around Egypt is where it became a, a big problem. Now there was another problem in this same region that developed too, which is like, oh great, how many problems can you have, you know, in, in one church? Well, sometimes you can have a lot. So there was a group called uh, monetists. Monetists followed a guy by the name of uh, Montanus, uh, excuse me, Montanists and Montanus was the, uh, the founder of this group. Uh, this came right out of this particular region, this particular uh, concept that this Montanus uh, had. And uh, he, most, uh, the early church by the second and third centuries had a real problem with Montanism. Uh, and it, it was, one of the ways of describing it was called New Prophecy. Uh, it was a movement that focused specifically on prophecy. Now, prophecy in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, prophecy, uh, even up through the second century uh, in Christian communities, was, was something that was uh, appreciated. Uh, and in some of our churches, is still today. But what became of the problem was that uh, uh, Eusebius, uh, Eusebius in uh, Caesarea 
said that they had departed from the church tradition of what prophecy was. And uh, it, it, they believed that it was some sort of a, a frenzy or ecstasy that uh, the person became almost raving and babbling and uttering strange sounds and prophesying in a manner that, according to the, the Orthodox Church, was not handed down from the tr from from the beginning of the church. Um, it was, uh, if I can read my notes here, uh, the the prophets, the Montanist pro Montanist prophets, did not speak as messengers of God, but were described as possessed by God and thus being unable to resist it. Um, <clears throat> They had some other really unique things, and again, they believed, as an example, they believed that um, that uh, that the prophecies that they received superseded the authority of Christ and superseded Scripture. Uh, that it was that that what they found and what they heard was more important than what God than what God had revealed in His Word. Um, <clears throat> There are a number of early church fathers that practiced Montanism. Uh, Tertullian, who I happen to like in a lot of areas, was, was one of the ones that followed them. But they believed that the power of the apostles and the prophets, that they could forgive sins. Not God the, the Son or God the Father would forgive sins. They also believed that martyrs could forgive sins. Um, they were... Uh, um, Women and and, and uh, girls were uh, forbidden to wear ornaments. Virgins were required to wear veils. Um, they practiced a rigid, uh, rigid um, uh, ethical and asceticism. You remember asceticism is kind of like uh, monks that take uh, vows of silence and poverty and all of those sorts of things that they practiced. Uh, they kept very strict fasts. They were constantly adding new fasts. Um, they provided, uh, this is one of the things that was kind of interesting. They actually paid their, their, uh, their, pa their pastors, <laughs> which some of the early churches didn't. Um, and so, uh, the early churches accused them of gluttony because they paid the pastors. Uh, just um, anyhow. There were a number of problems that, that were as a result of this that Montanism uh, pr provided. The church fought against it, but it came specifically out of this region is where it became uh, from originally. So let's continue on. Unless you have any questions. Any thoughts, questions? I, I read when I, I Googled it that they also were uh, believed in, uh, uh, you know, having uh, enraptured seizures. Yeah, uh, as part of their practices. Yep, when yep. they're prophesying, prophesying. Don't yep. we see some other uh, religions that that still uh, follow those things? I'm thinking of Mormons, and I'm thinking of uh, Muslims. Even some of those things. Well, the Muslims have yeah, they have a group called Sophism, uh, Sophies that uh, practice a kind of um, religious um, uh, frenzy that they uh, they fall yeah. into there are some of the other muslim groups uh discount sophism but sophism yeah. is uh a is a is a sect of muslim yeah. yeah but even mormons do some of those uh odd things i can't remember what you said i i just remember when you said it i said oh that sounds like a mormon whatever yeah it, again there are, you know what we find is some of these things happen in a lot of 
a lot of places. And again, uh, remember that history is always written by those who win. <laughs> and uh, and so you know when we start talking about as an example what is a heretic um you you have to be careful because usually the the, the information we have today about her, heretics from early days was written by the orthodox church after they had won the battles um you know, it's one of the re one of the problems you, you, that uh, the Catholic Church had with uh, the Waldensians. Uh, Giuseppe, we there are a few Waldensians still in in Italy. Uh, it was a group that, for all intents and purposes, m much of what they said I thought was accurate and and true. But if you listen to the Catholics and you read the Catholic account of Waldensianism, uh, they were pure heresy you know, what they, they practice. And, it, and it's true of, of many places. Winners always write history. Just remember that. So, so what's wrong with the term Jehovah? Nothing's wrong with the term Jehovah. The problem was that they said that Jehovah was the maker of, of the, of the uh, physical world. And therefore he was evil. Because if you were a Gnostic, you didn't, you, physical was bad, spiritual good. Today, think about this. How many times have we heard in from not necessarily Kensington, okay, but have you heard from church that, you know, well, you're one way on Sunday, but you're a different way the rest of the week? Yes. That's that's dualism. I agree. See, you see how that how quickly it can fall into our, our you know, and we start saying, well, you know, you can't tap your foot. You know, we used to say as a Baptist, you had to be careful about tapping feet because if you tap two feet, you were dancing. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, it's easy for you to become concerned about the flesh, and the flesh it becomes a problem. And that's why they thought that Jehovah was bad, was because he had created the world, and therefore, you know, he's the one that created all the evil that we have. That's not what we believe, is it? I hope not. <laughs> of course not. But it, my understanding was that. Uh, in the Bible, that uh, many of the written Bibles today that we view today, that the name Jehovah was taken out of it because Jehovah was thought to be the supreme God, and that was a name that ah. that uh, you would not use unless you had special knowledge or whatever. And sure, used, yeah, and in that instance, yeah, even today, um, uh, you know, the the the. We're not really sure if it's Jehovah or Yahweh. It all depends on what yep. kind of vowels you put into the the, the Hebrew uh, consonants that are written about God. But those, you know, Jews did not use the word the, the name of the the covenant name of God. It was so sacred that they wouldn't use it. In fact, they would be very careful about even writing it. And um, you know, I've mentioned that it was not unusual for them to have to bathe before they wrote the name if you were a scribe and to bathe afterwards uh, to make sure that you uh, kept it holy when you wrote it uh, down. Uh, there was something I was going to, uh, whatever it was, just to say, oh, I know. Um, perhaps you've, you've seen the, the Dutch, um, no, uh, the Danish uh, Bible, uh, has recently been republished uh, published again. They took out the name Israel out of every 
mentioned wow. in, in scripture wow. uh, and put in instead us. Uh, they also uh, were very careful about getting rid of a lot of things that, that had to do with with Israel. And it would appear that the reason that they did that was because they have a large uh, group of Muslims. The minority of Muslims are much larger than the minority of, of Jews, which is really kind of sad that they've, they've actually are playing into the concept of, um, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, replacement theology, wow. in which the church becomes a, um, uh, the, re the replacement of Israel. Mm. And, PC. Uh, I'm sorry. PC. Yeah. PC as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, so, you know, like, uh, you know, the word, uh, the, the verse, he watching over Israel slumbers not nor sleeps. Yep. So it's he watching over us slumbers not nor sleeps. Oh, wow. Um, it's a big Changes deal. the whole scripture. Yeah, it changes the whole concept of, of uh, what we understand exactly. in scripture. And uh, so they just, just republished or published it. They had published a, a New Testament that was uh, basically anti-Semitic. And then they, they've since then uh, taken a whack at the, at the Old Testament and uh, changed it rather dramatically as well. Which is one of the, you know, they're trying to. You can't, you can't please all sides. No. That, you, yeah. And that's where you get into a problem because I'm sure they're not going in and rewriting in that area the um, Quran and taking out <laughs> objectionable <laughs> things as well. So, you know, you, no, I, you, yeah. you, you put yourself in a, in a whole you know that, that I don't know. We probably should just leave that alone. <laughs> yeah, we can go down that road. But th my point yeah. was simply just to to point out the fact that we change. You know, sometimes we'd leave things out or we change it, and it's if you change a word, sometimes you can change the whole meaning of something. Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the absolutely. issues with Gnosticism was they started to practice all kinds of interesting thoughts. Um, all right, so. Uh, where did Paul write this from? Again, this is the same arguments that we had when we studied the book of Philippians. There are three major areas that they that people consider. For years, everyone said it was wrong. And then some people decided, well, they were smarter than the traditionalists. So they started saying it was Caesarea because remember he was he, in the book of Acts. He's in Caesarea uh, in, in, Judea, uh, in Judea for a long period of time. Uh, before he sent to Rome. So some people say he wrote it there. Some others say he was imprisoned in uh, Ephesus, which I don't see any indication of that, but there are people that want to say that. By and large, it looks like it was written in, from Rome. And if that's the case, um, the best accounts that we have, which the best data we have would indicate Rome and would indicate probably somewhere between 60 and 63 AD. I should also mention in passing, at least, that up until the 19th century, no one questioned whether or not Paul wrote the book of Colossians. Starting in the 19th century, specifically, I don't know why, but the, the, the German uh, theologians really went to town on a lot of scripture. Uh, and they, they, they postulated the possibility that Paul did not write the book of Colossians. 
even though it mentions him and uh, mentions Timothy and, and others that were part of his group, um, that seems to be pretty unusual and probably not, there's not a lot of, of, of documentation to give it any thought in my opinion, but anyhow, I mentioned it in passing so that you know that. Uh, most people still today say that Paul uh, wrote the book of of Colossians, and I, I really believe that's the case. I can't understand why it wouldn't be the case. All right, so uh, let's see what else do I have to talk about here. Uh, you know, I think we've pretty well covered the uh, first, uh, what I wanted to cover out of uh, the introduction. So that being said, want to take a whack at the first few verses. I mean, how do they, Val? How do they how do they reconcile that with the uh, you know chapter four verse eighteen? It says the salutation by the hand of me, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know they, what they say <laughs> is they say that it's much like some of the uh, uh, books in the apocrypha. They call them pseudopigraphas, you know, that they were written with somebody else else's name claiming authority. Therefore, it gives it legitimacy. So if I wrote it, if let's say I wrote a, an epistle and I, and I signed it by the name Paul because I figured, well, no, let's say, let's say I signed it by the name uh, Steve Andrews. It would carry more weight than if it came from Valen Press. Because Steve Andrews is the founding, one of the founding pastors of, Kensington. So if I sent something out under the name Steve and, you know, uh, Steve Andrews, everyone would say would give it much more credence than if it came under my, my name. So that's, that's what one of the ways that, that uh, scholars get around uh, people like, you know, Paul saying, well, I wrote it with my hand. It's just, uh, I'm, I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm saying it's, it's, it's an, it's interesting how, the more the more intelligent we see, we think we are, sometimes the the more we trip up ourselves when it comes to doctrinal issues. <laughs> so, aka any any schism in any church, right? Pretty much, yeah, pretty much. So here here's my thought: don't don't ever don't ever go to Bible school. <laughs> just, although I I will tell you this: I I from an anecdotal evidence, uh, I remember one pastor that I. Uh, I actually got to hear prior to him going to seminary, and then I worked with him for several years after he had gone to seminary. He had gone to Bible college or Bible school, Bible college uh, prior to going to seminary. He was a much better preacher before he ever went to seminary. <laughs> it was horrible, horrible when he came out. I was like, holy smokes, boy, you lost it. Now, I, I'm saying that as anecdotal evidence, not empirical evidence to that fact. All right, so let's take a look at Colossians, shall we? And we'll see what danger we can get into. All right, let's take a look at the first eight verses. I don't know if we'll get through them all or not today, but we'll, let's read them. And for sake of argument, I guess I'll read it. It's Paul, the apostle of Christ, Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ in Colossians. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because 
we had heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all saints, the faith and love that spring from the hope that is stored up in you in heaven, um, and that you have already heard about the word of truth, the gospel that has uh, come to you. All of the, of the world, uh, all over the world, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all of its truth. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the spirit. All right. So we have uh, two writers of this this uh, book. It would appear that Paul is writing and Timothy is, is, uh, uh, is there as well, although it would appear that Paul is the primary writer. Now, one of the reasons, one of the things I didn't mention, I should mention, is that this particular book deals with uh, Christological matters and soteriological matters. Now, anybody want to take a stab at what Christology is? Study of Christ. Good, good. Soteriology. Study of the blood or salvation. Study of salvation, correct. Two stars for George, one star for whoever mentioned it, the other one. All right, good for you. That's right, yeah. So this book is going to be emphasizing the uh, uh, Christ's uh, preeminence uh, in all things. And in addition to that, it's going to, uh, it's going to take a cosmological view of Christ, that he is over all things, not just the church, but that he is the creator and is uh, the sustainer of all that there is. So uh, that's the, the theme that we're going to look at. <clears throat> Notice that Timothy is not called an apostle. He is called a brother. And uh, when we talk about uh, ap- apostles, Paul's claiming apostleship. What does it, what did it take to be an apostle? Do you remember? Well, what was the criteria? Paul I'm sorry, say, say it again. Called and sent by God. Okay. Also, you had, to be, you had to see the risen Christ, they thought. Yes, yes. So you had to personally witness the resurrection. Now, Paul claimed that he'd seen the risen Lord in 1 Corinthians 9.1. So therefore, he, they, he, he would claim that he had witnessed the resurrection. Further, his, his message, that's the other thing, his message uh, came from divine revelation and not a human in- intermediary. Uh, Galatians, when we studied Galatians 1, we talked about that. Remember, we said that he had been uh, a rabbi and he had studied from some of the foremost rabbis of their time, uh, but that after he had, had come to know Christ, he spent uh, parts of up to three years relearning and rethinking the whole concept of what it meant to be a believer and what it meant to what Christ was te- or what God taught in the Old Testament. He is the, the one of the main reasons why I think God chose him to write the scripture was that he was so well trained as a rabbi. Most of the other apostles were not did not have the kind of training that he had. So for them to take on some of the, the challenges of, of trying to uh, describe for us the theology of God would have been really tough. So those are the two things. Now, Paul and, and Timothy share ministry, and he's called a brother in, in Christ. And, he's, and they're writing to the holy and faithful brothers 
in Christ in Colossae. So they were told, first of all, that they were in Colossae, that was the geographical location in the world. And then they were also called uh, holy and faithful brothers of Christ. That was their spiritual location was that they were in Christ, in Christ. So the Colossians were located, if you will, at least from a spiritual standpoint, located in Christ. So they had, we have a geographical location, a spiritual location. Uh, which meant that they were uh, that what was happening was that this heresy was threatening them since they were in Christ. But we also know that it's impossible once you're in Christ to be out of Christ. Be out of Christ. Thank you. All right. Good. From you, from the the first eight verses here, it's, uh, reading and and Thanksgiving and stuff like that. It doesn't even sound like there's a problem in the church does it yeah it's it's pretty minor as far but he is going to deal with it as we get especially get into uh uh chapter one verse 15 and following mm -hmm. yeah but he talks about the fact that they are faithful and he, and he and he stresses their consistency in spite of the heresy that's that's threatening them i think he's in some ways he's probably denny writing this to shore up their understanding just to make sure that they don't fall is my guess. And then he says this interesting, he says, grace and peace be with you. Now, what I find really fascinating about this is that um, in the Greek, um, the idea is, um, there's a Greek word and, and our English spelling of it would be C-H-A-R-E-I-N, which is basically a greeting like, Greetings, hello, you know, versus C H A R I S, charis, which is grace. So Paul uses a little bit of a play on words here because the normal way that you would greet someone in the old, in ancient times would be uh, greetings and peace. Hey, hello, and 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 I hope peace is with you. And and Paul changes this almost every many of the of the uh, uh, epistles he writes he'll say grace and peace so he's he's using the, the 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 appropriate form if you will of writing a letter to them but he changes it just enough so that he makes his point and then he goes into this thankfulness and um, you know most often Paul opens his epistles with an expression of thanksgiving for the church and he approaches this uh, this with him, even if he's never even uh, seen them, which he did here in and also in Romans. Um, he he wants them to know that he is thankful for what they are doing, and for for the fact that they are staying true to the word. Now, um, it is part, perhaps important to know that he is thanking God for them, and. We, I think we've talked about this. I've never really taught on the subject of, of worship uh, as a, a, in, in DIG, uh, just little bits and pieces. And I'll, so I'll throw another little bit of piece out here. There are two concepts uh, when we talk about God's character that we do as, as believers. We respond to God in, in one of two ways if we're responding appropriately. One is thanksgiving. The other is praise. Do you happen to know the difference between the two of them? Anyone want to take a guess? Uh, 
Okay. What one's man to God and one's well, well you know, it's praises for what God has done. I, I guess they're very similar, right? Praises about the character of who God is and yes. thanksgiving is for what he has done. Absolutely. Two sides of the same coin, if you will. All about who God is, but one is thanking him, praising him for who he is, his character. One is thanking him for what he did or what he is doing. So Paul is thanking uh God for what he is doing within the lives of the, of the, of the Colossians here. And often, by the way, th these tend to get blended together. If you talk about, let's, let's give, you know, let's thank God for what he's doing. If you start thanking God, you'll end up at some point slipping in a praise or two, because you'll start talking about who he is. And the same thing when you start trying to talk about just who he is, you'll end up slipping into some thanksgiving as well. It just tends to happen that way. It's again, it's two sides of the same coin all talking about the nature of God and what God does as a result of that. It's important to know that there is a difference, though, between the two. All right, so he says, uh, uh, he talks about um, a couple of other things. He, he's using here in verse 3, um, he uses the term, we always give thanks to God. And then later he says, we pray for you. Um, and it's important to know that, that, um, uh, there are two, uh, there's several aspects of praying. Um, there's a general aspect of prayer and then there is the thanksgiving portion of prayer. And then there is the asking portion of prayer, which we find in, we're not going to get to verse nine today, but verse nine would be the, the, the rest of that where we ask God for something. So it's a specific request. So what we have here is prayer is a general idea. Thanksgiving is a specific uh, form of prayer. And asking also is a specific request in prayer. So it's important to know that there are different aspects within our prayer life. Sometimes we ought to do a study of prayer. That'd be an interesting study, wouldn't it? Okay, none of you want to pray. All right, good. No. <laughs> Thank you, George. At least somebody laughed. Uh, all right. So uh, notice that uh, Paul says they're continual. Uh, he's not ever stopping. And so he, they're always on Paul's mind and thoughts. Uh, second, the prayer is directed to God, not to anybody else. That's important to note. He directed it to God, and that they're directed to an intercessory. And, uh, and then uh, the other thing that's interesting is that God, it, Paul tends to pray for people more than for events. And when I started to realize that and think about it, I got to thinking there are times when I forget that, that, I should, that, that my prayer life ought to be based on praying for people, not for just events. How would that change your prayers and my prayers if we started emphasizing just praying for people? Val? Yeah. Um, when you say praying for events, um, what, what do you mean exactly? Well, I think what I was thinking about was that, that we're praying for uh, circumstances versus praying for people in the circumstances. 
Okay, I see. You know, he just prays for a winner of the Super Bowl, not a particular team. <laughs> oh, but, thank you. <clears throat> you know, yeah, I let that, the spirit tell me. <laughs> that, that was that was always one of the things that that I struggled with when I was in high school. I was I I played I I played varsity ball and I played. Um, I'm sorry, guys. It, it, I just, I just take me a second, and I'll get through it. I promise. Uh, we, uh, we were a Christian, uh, Christian school, and we played other Christian schools. And so, you know, of course, one of the things uh, that you know Christians do, even on sports teams, is we pray. You know, before we start the the uh, the event. And so we'd always be praying that God would give us the victory. And I'm, and I always thought, well, aren't the other people doing the same thing? Yeah. You know, isn't the other team praying for that? And, and what happens if God gives them the victory, not us? Just a thought. So, yeah. anyhow. They're more holier. Yeah, apparently. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> All right. So, Paul was a man of prayer. Paul had a list of, of prayers for people whom he prayed for and for the events in their lives, but he prayed for the people. And then we talk about here. Uh, in verse coming up in verse four is the uh, let's see where's well, I got to figure out a better way of doing this. My eyes are don't work. I got to pull the Bible closer to me because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for the saints for all the saints. So faith is important. It marks it marks who we are. That's what we have faith in Christ Jesus, and it's different than having faith that's directed towards Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ Jesus is a settled thought process, right? Faith directed towards him is kind of wishful thinking. I agree. Yeah. Well, at least one of you agrees. Okay, we can go on. <laughs> All right. So uh, Paul uses a, a variety of, of uh, means to express uh, different aspects of faith. But he, he spoke of faith as a conduit through which the relationship with God is achieved through faith. He also spoke of faith directed towards Christ, uh, directed towards God, but based on Christ. So he talks about on faith. And faith is a sphere in which Christians live in faith. So um, like John, uh, he talks about the only way that one can approach God is through faith. And John spoke of faith as an activity. And you'll remember, we've talked about this, John rarely uses the term faith. He uses another term, which faith is a noun, but he uses a verb. The verb that, that, that John uses over and over again is believe. Believe is a verb. Faith is a noun. Same thing, same concept, just a different way of of portraying it so john uses the term believe rather than the noun the noun for faith and shows a decisive tendency towards using the principles uh and uh to describe believers and he says it's important that we grow in our love for each other that's the second evidence that paul uses here is that we we love uh and they have a, the love that you have for all saints. It isn't just us four and no more. It isn't just the Holy Hubble. It, it's, it's a love that they have for all believers. And I go, whoa, I have a hard time sometimes with that, don't you? 
I want to, I, I'm, it's, it's rare that I pray, I pray for people that have, that have a different belief uh, wheelhouse, a different faith wheelhouse. You know, my, my theology is different than theirs. And I'll pray for people that are my theology. Sometimes I have a hard time remembering to pray for people that have a different the, theological wheelhouse than I do. And if you do, you always pray that they come to your side of the fence. Well, of course, because <laughs> I'm right and they're wrong. <laughs> Got to go, guys. See you. Right, take care, Larry. Here, Larry. So I would just say this. This love that they have is sacrificial. They use the, the term here is agape, which is a willful choice, a sacrificial choice of which they're willing to give of themselves. And secondly, it's indiscriminate. They don't choose, you know, well, I'll pray for them and I'll love this person, but I won't love that person, which is kind of tough because there are some people that are easier to love than others, right? Yeah. It's directed towards all of the saints, not just a few of them. Uh, I think that John uh, caught this when he, he, in John 17, he, uh, and I just want to wrap up with this concept here. We'll just stop in verse four. Uh, but in John 17 here, it, he, John is, is recording Jesus' prayer, if you will, his high priestly prayer, just before he goes into uh, the, the last day, the last hours of his life, before he's arrested and put on trial for being the Messiah. He says, my prayer is not for them, not just for my, my current, the current believers. My prayer is also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, both the ones that currently believe Jesus and those that will come to believe in Jesus. Father, just as you and I, you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. And may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have love for them, even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory and the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made them, uh, I've made you known to them and will continue to make them known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and I myself may be in them. So love has two divine objectives. It's one to represent Christ to the world, especially now that he is physically absent from us. And the other thing that, that love does is it perfects us as the body of Christ. So as we close out today, I want to just emphasize that our goal, God's goal for us, is to represent him in this world while he is physically absent from it. How are we doing? And I have to admit, sometimes I don't do so well. And then the second thing that my, my love is supposed to do is supposed to help perfect the body of Christ, which means that I'm helping others become better believers. How are we doing with that? How are you doing? Sometimes we're not doing so well. Not good. <laughs> not so good, yeah. Yeah. So as we close I'm doing, today, go ahead. I'm doing great if I don't judge. 
<laughs> yeah, my my problem is so often too often I want to be judge, jury, and executioner. Yep. I heard somebody say recently that. Um, let's see if I got my thing. In. I heard somebody say recently that it's not so more important to be right, uh, but it's important to continue in your pursuit of God because if you take God as a big circle and you put one little dot in there, that's what I know. And then you have a portion that you know, it's your little dot too, but we, none of us know that complete circle. Yeah, so that's good. It, like it's, somebody said also, if you go back and think what you maybe talked to people five or 10 years ago and what you would say to them today, you would want to go back and say, you know, I wish I had not said that 10 years ago because that was incorrect. Yep. That's, yeah. that's kind of, I teach, True. I try to get the kids to, to be kind, not right. When they talk to people, you know, <clears throat> in that mode. I have a tendency to want to be, to want to prove the fact that I'm right and they're wrong. Right. And that's our, <laughs> that's, I think it's all of us. I also heard that Governor Whitmer is going to continue the lockdown until the Lions win the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'd we'll be all dead. Uh, I find that strategy of always being right works real well uh, with my wife. Oh, it doesn't. <laughs> I'll have to try uh, that sometime. No. I, I've not found that to no. be true in my case, but I'm glad you managed to work it out. Yeah. Also, <laughs> being sarcastic. I also kept thinking about the progression of the Jewish people. They first had the written law, then they had the oral law. And then from that, they got the Torah. And from the Torah, they went to Kabbalicism. And then from that, they went to Hasidicism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was thinking a little differently. You were talking about first they're given, they're given oral instructions. Then they're given a written law. And they can't follow that. So then the, 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 true, the true word comes. They're given the word in writing. And now they've got the living word. And they still can't figure out how to get it right. Which, in all fairness... Neither can we unless God draws us to himself. And also the Bible basically is a continuing progression to the final living word, which is Jesus. Yeah. The whole Bible. We have an overarching theme throughout the entire scripture. And that theme is God loves us and wants us to come back to him. The problem I have sometimes, I'm not sure if you guys do too, I remember years ago when I first started, I would listen to multiple people that had multiple different ideas. And I got so confused, I said, I'm not going to listen to anybody. So it's kind of wild sometimes. And I feel like I'm doing that again. Sometimes I'm listening to so many people, I'm not sure what I know anymore. <laughs> if I know anything at all. I think it's good to, to have, you know, to have different people in your life to speak into it. The question is, are they speaking truth? Oh, yeah. And the way that you, the way that you know that is by staying in the word. Yeah. Yeah. The more you stay in the word, the more you are going to, you might not be able to point your finger and say, okay, this is what's wrong, but you'll, you'll sense that there's something wrong because the Holy Spirit will, I think, will yeah, the whole you. But the other thing, too, is sometimes you have to be careful because sometimes you may have some truth, and I kind of kibosh it. And the other thing, too, I heard somebody say one time, even though everybody preaches in different ways, 
God will always let them have a certain amount of error <laughs> because he always wants you to look to him. That's interesting. I, I recently, a couple of years ago, I, I came to the conclusion that, that heaven will be filled with heretics. <laughs> because the definition of a heretic is just simply someone who gets one part of their theology wrong. Well, I'm pretty sure that I didn't get, I'm not going to get it all right. Yeah, and you, you mentioned today about that Danish thing, I thought. You know, it talks about there's going to be one last big anti-Semitic move. And that, yeah. that Dutch thing really kind of bothered me today. I'm thinking yeah, that's from moving Den more Denmark. and more to that. Remember, it's Denmark. Yeah, I, whatever. I, yeah, but it's Denmark, yeah. What I think what fascinating, fascinates me about Denmark is that during World War II, you know, they still had a king, right? So when the, the, the uh, Nazis said to, to the Danish people, uh, we want you to put stars on all, uh, yellow stars on all Jews. Hmm. So the king went out and sewed yellow stars on his clothes as well. And all of the people in Denmark did that oh. to show solidarity with, with the Jewish people and to, and to try to save them. And I'm thinking to myself, how can you go from that in <laughs> 1940 to where they are now, where they're, you know, almost... There, I think there's only like 6,000 Jews right now in Denmark. Hmm. Something like it's a very small population. I don't know. I, I, I look at a lot of things that are going on today, and I'm going, yeah, I think, you know, we're getting closer and closer. God's going to return at some point. Christ is going to return at some point. I'm not sure when. I also wonder what would have happened. And it's funny what you think about. I think about what if the Jews would have accepted Christ when he came? Yeah, that would have been a. How different would things be? Well, I think it's it's probably what we would have seen out of Isaiah, where it talks about that they were, a, you know, that they would have been a light to the to the Gentiles. They they would have brought the Gentiles into an understanding of who Christ, you know, who God is. I think it'd be a, it'd be interesting. I think it's going to be a lot like it's going to be when Christ returns. But hey, what do I know? On the second half of the second coming, if you're in my wheelhouse theologically. Well, heck, all you got to do is read the book. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I can't think of the name of it, darn it. <laughs> so well, the just read the book. Yeah, that's right. Just read the book. And please start with Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you got to completely keep... comprehend it once. Yeah, I, I got guys that keep asking me to do Revelation, just like I got somebody who's, who keeps asking me to do Isaiah. It's only got 66 chapters in it. Yeah, That'll take forever. Yeah, one of these days we'll, we'll tackle Daniel. I don't know. That, that'll be – we tackle Daniel, we could tackle, we could tackle Revelation. Yeah, Here's Daniel my problem tracking, in tackling Revelation. <clears throat> is over the years my, my – I think my theology has changed a little bit. My understanding of, of Revelation has changed. And um, if I had taught it years ago, I don't know if I'd have taught it the way I'd, I'd teach it today. And there are a lot of it I still would teach the same way, but there are other aspects of it. I think it just happens as we grow. Yes, you're becoming more right. <laughs> <laughs> possible. I'm, I'm coming into somebody's way of thinking, right? No, just... 
it's just like, it's imagine it's hard to fathom that said, God in the ages to come will show his grace in Jesus Christ in the ages to come. That's yeah. just hard to grasp sometimes. Anyway. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, gentlemen, it has been a, a privilege and an honor to, to spend some time with you in the word today. And um, I hope that uh, I'm going to stop